What makes a church a church? After all, many religious groups meet regularly to talk about their common values and their common mission. But is there something unique about the gathering of Jesus's followers? Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, we hope you know that you can find thousands of more free resources. This is articles, sermons, other podcasts like David's daily devotional podcast, Pray the Word. You can find all of that at Radical.net. Well, in today's sermon on Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 28, David is going to look at biblical evangelism and what this has to do with this all-important question that Jesus asked his disciples nearly 2,000 years ago. Who do you say that I am? Today, we'll see how the church's identity is tied to believing and proclaiming the gospel. Here's David Platt with a new sermon, Biblical Evangelism, from Matthew chapter 16. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or, or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 16. First book in the New Testament, latter part of the Bible, Matthew chapter 16. And uh, while you're turning there, I want to welcome those of you in Montgomery County and Loudoun and Prince William and the Wharf and other microsites. It's good to be together across Washington, around the word. I want to give you a minute to find Matthew 16, and then I uh, want to invite you to look up here once, once you've found it. So Matthew chapter 16, and then I want us to, just to, to pause for a minute. My, uh, my heart is really heavy today. So last week we began thinking together about what it means to be a church because there are a lot of things in the world today called church that aren't church. But in the same way today, I want us to think about how there are a lot of people in the world called Christians who aren't Christians. Let me repeat that again because I really don't want you to miss it. There are a lot of people today, if I could be so bold, I would even say a lot of people in this room and at other campuses right now who are called Christians, but are, are not Christians. You say, is that possible? Is it possible to call yourself a Christian and not be a Christian? I would say it's not just possible, it is probable. And Jesus says just a few pages before what we're about to read, Back in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And he talks about the day of judgment before God. And Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them, I never knew you. 
Away from me, you evildoers. Did you hear that? Jesus says, there are many people. He uses the word many, not just a few. He says that many people will be shocked to stand before him one day thinking their eternity was secure when it was not. Many people who claim his name will one day hear him say, I never knew you. Away from me. Those verses haunt me as a pastor. They have kept me awake at night, last night, thinking that there may be many people in the church who don't actually know Christ. Do you see the danger here? It is possible for us to profess publicly that which we do not possess personally. It is possible to be so close to spiritual reality yet be so deceived by superficial religiosity. So just like we need to look at what the Bible says about who the church is, we desperately need to look at what the Bible teaches about who a Christian is, what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's what we're going to look at today. And just to let you know where all of this is headed, as I was praying and preparing for today, I just sensed that we need to have a time at the end of our time in the Word where people can publicly become followers of Christ. I know there are various non-Christian guests and friends and co-workers and family members who are here and at other campuses today. Maybe this is your first time in this church. Maybe you've come many times. In surveys we've taken here and at other campuses, somewhere around a thousand of you have said, I know I'm not a Christian. And at the end of our time in God's Word, A few minutes from now, I am going to invite you to become a follower of Jesus. And not just those of you who would say that you're not a Christian. There are others of you who would call yourself a Christian. But the reality is, you don't know Christ. A couple of thousand of you have practically said in those surveys that you don't really know Jesus. You've attended a church, this church, for however long, maybe many years. You even volunteer or maybe are on staff at this church. At various points in your life, you have gone through various motions of Christianity. But truth be told, right where you're sitting in your seat right now, you don't really know Christ. And today, at the end of our time, I am going to invite you to leave behind nominal Christianity, Christianity in name only, in order to actually know Christ. 
and to know in him that your eternity is secure. Life is so fragile. A funeral this last week for a man in our church who died suddenly of a heart attack on a business trip. I've been at the hospital this last week with a family of a wife and mom who was totally healthy one morning and in an instant had an aortic aneurysm that almost killed her. And I've just been reminded in a fresh way that life is short. Not one of us is guaranteed tomorrow. That's why when I was praying about today, I just thought I must call people to trust in Christ today, to know Christ today. Not tomorrow, but today. Because no one in this room or at any other campus, no one of us is guaranteed tomorrow. So I would just ask you to please pay attention closely over the next few minutes and search your heart. As we see how God in his word defines Christians, just ask yourself honestly, is this me? And if not, I want to invite all kinds of people of all ages and all backgrounds to say today, I want to know Christ. And in the process of knowing him, to know that your eternity is secure. So let let me pray. Oh God, you know how I've prayed. I've prayed in first service and the way you responded, I just pray right now that in the next few minutes you would do something supernatural in this room and in other campuses. God, I pray that in the next few minutes you would bring many people to Jesus. God, I pray that you'd help me to explain your word accurately in the power of your spirit in such a way that a few minutes from now, I pray that many people would be drawn to you. People who know they don't know you and even people who may have thought their eternity was secure when it is not. So please, oh God, do what you and your supernatural power alone can do in the next few minutes of pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, here's the text that's going to lead us to a time of response. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20 is the first time in the Bible that we ever see the word church. It's the first time Jesus ever uses the word church. And as we'll see, it is huge for understanding not just what it means to be a church, but what it means to be a follower of Christ. So let me read it aloud. Matthew 16, verse 13. It says, When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Did you see it? Verse 18. You might circle it in your Bible, the word church. First time we see it mentioned. Now, what do these verses mean? Because they have been the source of all kinds of debate and division and confusion over the course of Christian history. Is this Peter becoming the first pope? And what is all of this about binding and loosing? What in the world is Jesus saying here? And the answer is actually pretty simple. Basically, Jesus is defining the church, the community of Christ followers, in two significant ways. You might write them down. So one, the church is the community of people who know Jesus truly. The church is the community of people who know Jesus truly. Jesus asked his disciples in this passage, who do people say that I am? And the disciples share the varied responses that people had posited for who Jesus was. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, prophets come back from the dead, or at the very least, a new prophet, like one of these prophets from old. Even those who might have been thinking that Jesus was the promised Messiah had such a warped understanding of a political Messiah that Jesus told them in verse 20 not to tell people that he was the Messiah yet. And the same is true today. All kinds of people have all kinds of opinions about Jesus. He was a religious teacher, a good example to follow, someone who loved the poor and cared for those in need, a prophet, as Muslims might say, even a god, as some Hindus might say, a good man, as some atheists or agnostics might say. And some today, like in the first century, even have a warped political view of Jesus. All kinds of people have all kinds of opinions about Jesus. But then Jesus turns the question on them and says, but who do you say that I am? And the you there is emphatic and plural. So Jesus is basically confronting these disciples with this central question. And it is the most important question. In a sense, the ultimate question that every human being must answer. Because the answer to this question determines your eternity. Who do you say Jesus is? And in response, Peter, representing the other disciples, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that marks the first time we see the disciples truly confess who Jesus is. And their confession is loaded. This title, Christ, means Messiah, or the one promised by God to come ever since the beginning of the Bible. you got to feel the weight of what Peter just said here, because he didn't just say, I, we, think you're a good religious teacher, a good example to follow, a good man, or just any other prophet, or God even. No, let me give you a little background in the Bible to understand what Peter just said. So we don't have time to turn to all of these places in the Bible. Feel free to write them down just to get the picture of who the Messiah is, the Christ, the one God promised in Genesis 3.15 as the seed who would come and defeat sin and Satan finally. Genesis 12.3, he's the promised offspring who would bring blessing to all the nations. 
In Exodus 12, he's the promised lamb who would be slain to pay the price for sinners. In Exodus 16 and 17, he's the promised food from heaven and water who gives life. In Leviticus, he's the great high priest who alone can make atonement for sin, cover over sin. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet whose word can always be trusted. In Joshua, he's the Lord who will save us. In Ruth, he's the redeemer who loves us. In Samuel, Chronicles, and Kings, he's the Messiah king who is coming to reign over us. In the Psalms, he's the son of man and son of God who will be crucified and resurrected from the dead. In the prophets, he's the baby who will be born of a virgin God with us. Isaiah 7, 14, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Isaiah 9, 6, the suffering servant who will pay the price for our sins. Isaiah 53, the loving savior who will heal the lame, the blind, and the deaf. Isaiah 35, He's the son of man in Ezekiel 34, the authoritative king in Daniel chapter 7, the faithful husband in Hosea 3, the high priest and king in Zechariah 6, and the God who himself will come to us in Malachi 3. So when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's saying, you are the one since the beginning of history promised to come and forgive and free us from sin and lead us as Lord over our lives. And that is huge when it comes to what it means to know Jesus truly. So I recently mentioned an executive I was talking with on a plane, a self-proclaimed Unitarian Universalist Buddhist who told me that she believed in Jesus. She said she believed that Jesus was a good teacher and a good example for others. But when I asked her, do you believe you need Jesus to forgive you of your sin against God? And do you want him to reign as Lord over your life? She said, absolutely not. And I said as politely as possible, then you don't believe in Jesus. You're actually rejecting who Jesus is and all that Jesus taught. That may seem, sound kind of harsh, but this is C.S. Lewis' famous argument in Mere Christianity. Lewis looked at the claims of the Bible about Jesus and Jesus' teaching about himself. He concluded, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people, people often say about him that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
Indeed, Jesus is not just a great human teacher or a good example. And this is so important because who you say Jesus is will determine everything about how you respond to him. If you think Jesus is a good teacher, then you'll treat him like you would treat all kinds of good teachers. If you think Jesus has good ideas, then you'll listen to what he says every once in a while. If you think Jesus is a good example, then you'll try to follow that example here and there. And this is how all kinds of people treat Jesus. And it's not just my Unitarian Universalist Buddhist friend on the airplane. It's all kinds of men and women in the church for whom Jesus is a good distant religious figure worthy of some reverence, worthy of periodic church attendance and a periodic offering. But if the truth were told, we like the thought of believing in Jesus enough to save our skin for eternity, but we don't really want him to reign as Lord over every area of our lives right now. Amen. But that's not believing in Jesus. That's patronizing Jesus. And the evidence of it is all over contemporary Christianity today. All sorts of people who have made a decision, prayed a prayer, signed a card, accepted Jesus, whatever that means to them, but their lives don't look that much different than the rest of the world. They say they are a Christian, but the reality is they don't know Christ. At least not this Christ, because when you know this Christ, your life looks very different. One, one preacher I heard illustrated it this way. Uh, imagine I was uh, late getting here today. Imagine time came for the sermon, this thing was rolled out, and came that time, but nobody was standing behind it. It's kind of awkward for a minute, two minutes, three, four, five minutes go by, you're just kind of looking at each other. Ten minutes go by, finally, I come running onto the stage, out of breath. I stand here, catch my breath, and say, I'm so sorry that I'm late. But I was, I was coming over here today and uh, was driving on the interstate and had a flat tire. And uh, so pulled over, was fixing the flat tire, but the, all of a sudden the tire just rolled out into the middle of the interstate. And so I went out to get it and there was this Mack truck coming full speed and it hit me. It hurt. <laughs> hurt really bad. <laughs> But I got up and got the tire and put it back on the car and finished fixing it. Got in and got here as fast as I could. So I'm sorry I'm late. If that were my story, you would say either you're crazy or you are a liar. Why would you say that? Because you know that if a man gets hit on the interstate by a Mack truck going full speed, he looks different than he did before. <laughs> huh. 
Based upon that reality, I feel like I'm on pretty safe ground in saying that when a person comes face to face with God in the flesh, the sovereign King and Lord who reigns with all authority over all creation, when this Christ reaches down into your heart and forgives and frees you from the clutches of sin and self, your life is going to look very different. It's going to look different. The church is a people, community of people who know this Christ truly. So I asked you, do you know Jesus truly? I'm not asking if you go, have gone to church, have grown up in a Christian home. I'm not asking if you have prayed a prayer at some point in your life. I'm asking right where you're sitting right now, do you know Jesus truly, personally? And I ask you that question because it is the most important question in your life. Now, many of you think there are other questions that are more important. Who am I going to marry? How am I going to stay married? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to survive cancer? How am I going to persevere through this or that trial? What am I going to do for my job and this or that decision I have to make? And what I'm saying today is that all of those questions pale in comparison to this one question, do you know Jesus truly? Because the answer to that question determines who you're going to marry and how you're going to stay married and how you're going to survive cancer and how you're going to persevere through this or that trial and what decisions you're going to make at your work and where you are going to spend all of eternity. There is no more important question in your life right now than this. Do you know Jesus truly? Amen. And then, so keep going here. See the second description of the church here. The church is the community of people who know Jesus truly and the church is the community of people who proclaim Jesus confidently. Amen. Who proclaim Jesus confidently. Listen to what Jesus says next. Verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to say, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church? Let me ask you a question. What is the rock that the church is built on? Is it Peter? Is it Jesus? Is it the apostles? Is it the gospel? And I think the answer is yes. So let me explain. What makes this passage somewhat confusing is that there are metaphors used here that are used in other parts of the New Testament to describe the church. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul writes that Jesus is the foundation of the church. 1 Corinthians 10, 4, Jesus is called the rock. And in Ephesians 2, 20, Jesus is called the chief cornerstone. So we see places in the New Testament where the rock or foundation metaphors are used to describe Jesus, particularly in relation to the church. At the same time, you look at Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, you see that the apostles and prophets are referred to as the foundation of the church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul even describes himself and the other apostles as building the church. So you've got a variety of different metaphors used at different times in the New Testament to make different points. So what's the point that Jesus is making here? Well, what's unique here is that Peter's name means rock. 
there's a little bit of a play on words in this passage. Basically, Jesus is saying, I tell you, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church, which certainly seems to indicate that Jesus is acknowledging some kind of foundation in Peter. You're the rock, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. But think about it. What was the foundation in Peter? Well, consider what we just read. By God's grace, Peter had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And immediately after that, Jesus makes this statement about the church that he is building upon Peter and that confession of faith. The point then becomes clear. This is Jesus saying, in light of Peter's confession, you are being sent out by me with my authority to proclaim this gospel, this good news that I am the Christ And upon you and your proclamation of that good news, I will build my church. So the rock of the church, in a sense, is the people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ. The people of God proclaiming the good news that Jesus, God in the flesh, has come to save us from our sins and to rule and reign as Lord over all. So here, Peter is the first apostle to make that declaration. And this declaration is the foundation upon which the church is built, starting in Acts chapter 2. Turn over there with me real quick. Just one place I want you to turn. Look over to Acts chapter 2. So you take a right in your Bible, go past the book of Mark and Luke and John. You'll come to Acts chapter 2. So after Jesus dies on the cross for sinners to pay the price for our sin against God, then he rises from the grave in victory over sin, He tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon them. That's what happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. And right after that, Peter stands up and preaches the first Christian sermon. He starts it in verse 14, but jump with me to the end. Look at verse 36. So this is the climax of Peter's sermon. Listen to the wording closely here. Peter proclaims, Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, him being Jesus, both Lord and what? Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. You see it? Jesus is Lord and Christ. Peter is proclaiming in Acts chapter 2 exactly what he declared in Matthew chapter 16. And what did Jesus say back in Matthew 16? He said that upon that declaration, Jesus would build his church. So what happens right after Peter makes this declaration? Look at verse 37. When they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And listen to verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people put their faith in Christ, which leads to the formation of the church. Do you see it? Jesus is building his church upon the proclamation of the gospel in the mouth of Peter and the other apostles. You look at the next verse, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is exactly why Paul said in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. 
This continues for the first 12 chapters of Acts, but then, it's interesting, around Acts 13, Peter takes a back seat, Paul becomes more prominent in Acts chapter 13 and the rest of the book, yet the gospel keeps going and the church keeps growing. Do you know why? Follow this because the reality is it's not just Peter or Paul. Wherever the people of God, whoever they are, are proclaiming the gospel of Christ, Jesus is building his church. That's the story of the book of Acts. It's the story of the church throughout history. And it's the story of the church today. Get this. It's not just about Peter or Paul years ago or even preachers today. It's four high school students from the Prince William campus last week who went to the mall to share their faith. The first student they talked to, they had the opportunity to lead to Christ. That student is now coming to the Prince William campus. Wherever the people of God are proclaiming the gospel of Christ, Jesus is building his church. It's a pizza shop in Arlington where some of our young adults from Citywide Rides, I don't know if you've heard about what they're doing, young adults who go to hotspots in town on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, providing rides to people, sharing the gospel with them. Well, there's a pizza shop who offered to basically host a microsite there on Friday nights. So a guy, we'll call him Luke, is standing in line waiting for his pizza. He's watching the sermon on the TV. He asks the cashier why they were playing this. One of our guys starts talking to him, shares the gospel with him. Come to find out Luke grew up Catholic, ran away from the church and religion in college. Luke hears the gospel, says he doesn't want to live apart from God anymore, and he puts his trust in Christ, in the pizza shop. It's... It's an apartment not far from here where a Muslim woman from Bangladesh lives. One of our members delivers a care package through McLean on the move to her for her newborn granddaughter. She shares the gospel with this Muslim woman. This woman trusts in Christ and now has a Bible in Bengali. It's last week when we had a team in Ukraine sharing the gospel and helping start a church. Oh, get the picture. Whenever, wherever the people of God are proclaiming the truth of Christ, Jesus is building his church. And as long as this is happening, the gates of hell cannot stand against it. Oh, that's a great phrase. You come back to Matthew chapter 16, last part of verse 18. Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What does that mean? Oh, this is so good. This phrase, the gates of hell, is basically a Jewish idiom for the powers of death. So you think about what that means here in Matthew 16. On one hand, death cannot stop this Christ. If you look down in verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Oh, Mark it down. Death could not stop this Christ. This is why Jesus is not just merely a good religious teacher with good religious ideas and a good religious reputation. All kinds of people in history have taught all kinds of truth. But mark it, one, mark it down. Only one man has defeated death. Amen. Only one man has stared death in the face and conquered it completely. 
We're talking raised from the dead. Resurrection, not resuscitation, not reincarnation, not passed out, went to heaven, came back, wrote a best-selling book about it. We're talking dead for three days in a tomb and then walking around alive. We're talking, you go to a funeral tomorrow, you see a man's body put in a coffin, that coffin put in a grave, dirt poured over the grave, you walk away and next weekend, that same guy comes up to you on the street and says hello. That's crazy. It's crazy good. It's the greatest news in all the world. Death has been defeated. Jesus is alive. And eternal life is possible for everybody who confesses Jesus Christ knows Jesus Christ is Lord. Death couldn't stop this Christ. And so don't miss what Matthew 16 is teaching. Death will not stop his church. In other words, death can't stop the people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ. You say, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. I I don't know if you watched or heard much from Billy Graham's funeral this last Friday, this man who has preached the gospel literally to hundreds of millions of people in 180 countries. There's so many great things that were said as people talked about his love for God's word. Even when he could hardly hear or see in his old age, he would ask his children just to come and read the Bible to him for hours at a time. His love for his family, as each of his kids spoke with such honor about their dad, his love for his wife. It was said during the last years of his wife, Ruth's life, she'd just be lying there on her side in the bed and he would come sit down on her bed next to her and they would just look at each other in the eyes for hours without saying a thing. So at 99, last week, Billy Graham died. But do you know what happened Friday at his funeral? The gospel of Jesus Christ was proclaimed. Billy Graham gone, the gospel still going on. And not just at his funeral, but in the lives of all kinds of people all around the world who know and are proclaiming Jesus today as a result of Billy Graham's life. Death could not stop this Christ and death cannot stop the church. This is the testimony of history. Polycarp, the first post-New Testament story of martyrdom that we have recorded, 86 years old. He was told to deny Christ or die. Reproach Christ, the Roman proconsul said, and I will set you free. Polycarp answered, 80 and six years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I have wild animals here, the proconsul replied. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp said. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned, the proconsul replied. Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the coming judgment and eternal punishment. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Minutes later, Polycarp was burned alive, but his testimony to Christ lives on today. J.C. Ryle said, nothing can overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned, but the true church is never extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The pharaohs, the herods, the neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all. 
And it's true. The last century has seen unprecedented growth in the church across Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, China, South Korea, even in Iran, in the heart of the Middle East. Death could not stop this Christ, and death cannot stop his church. Because of the authority he has given to the church. When Jesus says in verse 19, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What he's saying is that when the church proclaims this gospel, the church does so under the authority of Jesus himself. I think about when I was telling my new executive friend on the plane, even what I'm saying today, to say, if you know Jesus as Savior and Lord, you are free from the penalty of sin and you will go to heaven. But if you reject Jesus as Savior and Lord, you will experience the penalty of sin. You will not go to heaven. At which point you might say, well, who are you to say whether or not somebody goes to heaven? And my answer would be, I'm nobody. I don't have that authority. But Jesus does. And this is what Jesus has said. So I can say confidently to my new friend on the plane and to every one of you today, if you live with Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, you will be forgiven of all your sin, free from its penalty forever. At the same time, I can confidently say, if you toy with Christ and ultimately turn from him as Savior and Lord of your life, you will spend eternity in hell. Apart from him, bound to your sin and its payment forever. So not my words, these are his words. And this is why the church is a community of people who proclaims Jesus confidently and continually, right? Like, think about it, church. We know what determines the eternal destiny of every single person in Metro Washington and every single person in the world. So we must go this week, every day, and next week, and the week after, and week all throughout the city and all around the world proclaiming this gospel. And that's why this is the second trait of a church. We talked about the first last week, biblical preaching and teaching, preaching and teaching that is based on the authority of this word. So now based on that, second trait is biblical evangelism, which means biblical proclamation of this gospel. The church is a community of people who know Jesus truly and proclaim Jesus confidently, which is what I'm trying to do today. So I'm asking every single person right where you're sitting right now, do you know Jesus Christ truly? Do you know Christ as the Savior of your sin and the Lord of your life? such that you know if you were to die today, realizing none of us is guaranteed tomorrow, do you know that if you were to die today, you would be in heaven with God? There's no more important question in the world for you to answer than this. Do you know Jesus? And today, if you have any question about that, if your heart does not respond to that question with a resounding, yes, I know him, 
then today I want to invite you to come to him. He loves you. He wants you to know him. And the freedom he gives you from sin, the freedom he gives you now, and the freedom he gives forever. So in just a moment, here and at other campuses, we're all going to stand and sing a song of confession of faith in Christ. Don't start moving around and just follow the picture. When we stand and sing, I want to invite people all across this room and at other campuses from the very back to the front. While we start singing this song from the first note that plays, first word that is sung, I want to invite you to boldly, humbly step out from where you are and to come down to the front of this room or front of other rooms at other campuses. And as we're all singing this song of confession, faith in Christ, for you to spread out all across the front here and at other campuses, and in your coming down, saying with Peter, today I confess that you are the Christ, my Savior and my Lord. I want to know you. I don't want to toy with you. I don't want to turn to you. I want to know you. So I want to invite non-Christian guests, friends, co-workers, family members, and nominal Christians who may have even called yourself a Christian when you came in today, but truth be told, you don't know Christ. I want to invite you to know Christ truly today. Please don't let pressure of any kind keep you from coming down here and other campuses. Think, what will my wife think? What will my husband think? What will my kids think? What will other members of this church think? And I've been here all these years. Here's what they'll think. If they're Christians, they'll praise God that you're coming to know Christ. Amen. So don't let pressure, don't let pressure, don't let, don't let pride keep you from coming down here. I was reading my Bible this morning about a Pharisee who in his pride was trusting in all of his religious activity to justify himself before God. He was contrasted with a tax collector who just humbly cried out, God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So humble your heart before God today and he will exalt you. He will save you. We're grateful that you joined us today on Radical with David Platt. If you'd like to watch or download this full sermon or hundreds of other sermons on a variety of topics, articles, and podcasts, that's all available free to you at Radical.net. And Secret Church 18 with David Platt is fast approaching on April 20th. So many of you have already registered. It's going to be an incredibly important night. So whether you're joining us in person there in Nashville or tuning in live via the simulcast with your church or your small group, we are looking forward to that important night. If you haven't yet registered, there's still time. You can register and learn more by visiting secretchurch.org. That's secretchurch.org. Well, I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us. Radical.net.